Anyway, as you know, this past week, the headlines were dominated by the rapid spread of the coronavirus, and I think what was maybe most shocking to all of us was all the major events that were canceled or postponed, all the schools and stores and ski resorts and theme parks and sports leagues that were closed or or suspended. And at the same time, I was trying to keep up with the rapidly changing news, I was trying to keep up with my emails. Because my inbox, as I'm sure yours as well, was flooded with emails from every restaurant I've ever eaten at and every store I've ever shopped at, every coffee shop or ice cream shop I've ever been to, every hotel I've ever stayed in, every airline I've ever flown on, every company I've ever rented a car from, basically everyone I've ever done business with in my life was providing their response to COVID-19 and telling me how important I am to them and how my safety and well-being is their highest priority and how they're doing everything in their power to protect my health and of course to ensure that I keep doing business with them. I've never felt more loved and affirmed. Seriously, I was thinking about this and I would submit to you that the goal of every one of those emails is the same. It was to provide reassurance in the midst of this global pandemic that has resulted in global pandemonium and with all the unknowns of this mysterious virus, it's natural. Let's be honest, it's natural for people to be fearful and anxious and do crazy things like buy up all the toilet paper on the planet. I was reading an article and it's funny the headlines that attract our attention and we find ourselves reading going, why am I reading this again? One of the headlines that caught my attention was, why is toilet paper vanishing from supermarket shelves? I thought that sounds like a light read in the midst of all the other chaotic things we're reading about, and so I thought I'd take a break from the more intense stuff, and I I read that. But what I found extremely interesting, this was a secular article written by a secular individual, and they were giving the reasons why toilet paper is vanishing from the supermarket shelves. And one of the reasons I was frankly shocked by, but was thought how true that is, and this was the reason. They said purchasing products in bulk gives people a sense of control over their situation. I said, not bad for an unbeliever (laughs) to discern that. That that's probably a lot of what motivates us and drives us to do crazy things like that. In fact, I thought of titling this message this morning, Toilet Paper and the Sovereignty of God. But um, I decided to call it something else. Because in these uncertain times when there's so much speculation and The stock market is so erratic and the oil prices are plummeting and people are losing their jobs and having to alter their travel plans and let's face it, none of us likes the fact that our daily routines are being disrupted and upended. Even those of us who know the Lord have a hard time trusting God and remembering that he's in control. That he is in control, not us, not you, not me. One of the men who God has used over the years to impact my life and ministry is the late R.C. Sproul. I know a number of you have a great uh, appreciation and respect for that man and his ministry. His books have profoundly influenced the way I think about God, particularly about God's sovereignty. They say books don't change your life, sentences do. And one of the most life-changing sentences that I've ever read anywhere is in fact repeated in various ways in a number of 
R.C. Sproul's books. It's stated this way in one book, quote, if there is one maverick molecule in all the universe, then God is not sovereign. And if God is not sovereign, he is not God. Stated a little bit differently in another book, quote, if there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. His point is simple. There are no maverick molecules running around loose. God is sovereign. God is God. And even though we live in a fallen world where we're often exposed to all sorts of scary things that threaten to harm us and even kill us, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to worry about. Why? Because the all-powerful God of the universe has everything under control. And he has the right and he has the power to do whatever he wants and nothing, not even a coronavirus, can thwart his plans or act outside the bounds of his will. So what does that mean practically? Well, what that means is God knows exactly where the coronavirus started. He knows exactly how it's going to spread and where it's going to spread. He knows exactly when or how it's going to end. And he also knows whether or not you're going to get it or I'm going to get it. Furthermore, it means that we can rest assured that no matter what happens in this world and in our lives, we are safe in his hands since he is providentially ordering our world and our lives in such a way that will bring him the greatest glory and accomplish in us the greatest good. Romans 8.28. But most importantly, I think this morning, it means that every single promise that God has made to us in his word will be fulfilled, guaranteed. Including the promises that he made to us here in Psalm 91. And as I was thinking about all these emails that I was receiving this week and how everybody was responding and felt the need to give their response, including our own church. We felt we needed to provide some kind of response, some kind of direction. Uh, we are in the people gathering business, as it, I think you know that, right? So we had to provide a response of some sort. But I was thinking, if God were to send us an email... If he were to give us his response, what would it say? Would it sound like pretty much all the other ones? You know, hey, we're here to, you know, make, to ensure your safety and your health and, you know, you can keep coming and, and doing what you've always been doing. And I was like, well, I thought you were already cleaning my hotel room before I got there. I thought you were already cleaning the rental car and the, right, I was joking with somebody this week that I'm married to a woman that lives like there's coronavirus all the time anyway. And so she's one of those people that actually uses those little wipes on the handlebars of your cart when you walk into the grocery store, right? I didn't even know they were there until she showed me that they were there. And, and uh, whenever we get in the car after shopping somewhere, she pulls out the sanitizer and makes me put my hands out and we do our thing, right? So she's loving this. This is just like yeah, it's about time the rest of the world got into some good hygiene habits, you know? Um, but what was, what, I mean, they all started sounding the same, didn't they? Um, they were copying and pasting, you know, from one another. And Well, I think that Psalm 91 serves as God's response to COVID-19. And what he does is what all the other emails did was provide reassurance. 
And here in this psalm, he reassures his people that our safety and well-being are his highest priority. And that he does everything, not just now, but all the time, in his power, and there's no greater power. I appreciate everybody who's telling me they're doing everything in their power to help me out now, but they don't have the same kind of power as God does. He's all-powerful, and so he does everything in his power as the almighty God to protect us and keep us safe and secure. Now, while 150 Psalms obviously were inspired by God and preserved by him for our benefit, and each and every one of them is beneficial and practical in its own special way, but some are especially rich and comforting in times like we find ourselves in today, where there's, it seems like the most contagious thing out there is fear. The thing that we're most susceptible to is anxiety. And so this psalm is one of those distinctive psalms that countless believers have turned to over the centuries in the midst of life's calamities. Luther, Martin Luther loved this psalm. He turned to it often. He said this about it, quote, this is the most distinguished jewel among all the psalms of consolation. Spurgeon said, quote, in the whole collection of psalms, there is not a more cheering psalm. And so my prayer this morning is that God will use this psalm to console us and to cheer us up in light of all the things that we've seen happening with the coronavirus these past few weeks. Because Psalm 91 teaches us that absolute protection and security can only be found through a personal relationship with God. And it provides great comfort and confidence for those of us who live in a dangerous world filled with disease and disaster and death. And so the psalmist begins by expressing his own personal trust in God for security and protection. And then he continued by encouraging us to put our trust in God like he was, like he did. And he describes all the ways that God protects those who trust in him. And then the psalm ends by God stepping in himself and concluding the psalm by confirming that the psalmist has been saying, or everything the psalmist has been saying is true, and promising to protect and deliver everyone who knows him, loves him, and calls out to him for help. Well, this psalm breaks up nicely into three sections. The profession of faith in God's protection, verses one and two, the portrayal of God's protection, verses three through 13, and the promise of God's protection, verses 14 through 16. And I want you to notice as we go through this that these three sections build on top of one another for the purpose of not only consoling us, but convincing us to completely and confidently trust in God alone for our security and our protection. So let's look first of all at the profession of faith in God's protection. And the psalmist here began by expressing his own faith in God's power to protect him in any and every situation. Notice what he says in verses one and two. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And so these two verses serve as the theme or the main point of the psalm. And to fully understand what the psalmist was saying here, I think we need to take these two verses apart and then put them back together again. Notice there are four names for God. There's four pictures for the protection that he provides. And there's three actions that we must perform in order to experience God's protection. Let's look first of all at the four names of God. He calls him the most high, which is emphasizing God's sovereignty, that he's in control. He's the most high. He's above all else. He also calls him the almighty, which emphasizes God's sufficiency or God's power. He's the all-powerful God of the universe. And then he uses the word Lord, 
in verse 2, which emphasizes his authority, that he is the ruler, that he is the owner of all things. And then finally, he calls him my God, which emphasizes God's intimacy, that this was a personal relationship with God. He is his God, not just God, but my God. Notice the four pictures or metaphors for God's protection. He says he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. A shelter is a safe place to hide from a storm or an enemy attack. It's a, you think of a storm shelter or a bomb shelter. It's where you run to when impending doom is coming your way and you find a safe place to hide. He also talks about abiding in the shadow of the Almighty. This was a reference to being protected from the elements. And again, the psalmist was living in a land where the sun is oppressive, it's deadly. And so this was a a vivid metaphor of the care and the protection that God provides. A shadow is also a place where you can stay out of sight so your enemies can't find you. I have great memories playing flashlight tag when our kids were little. They'd have their friends over to the house and we'd spread out all around the yard and all over the neighborhood and we'd play flashlight tag. And one of the best ways to, to hide when you're playing flashlight tag and just, you don't even have to be behind a bush or under something. You just have to be in the shadow of something. And they can't see you. A third picture or metaphor is the word refuge there. He says, my refuge which again is a place to flee when you're in trouble. It's a a place to find safety and rest. You think about a a safe haven. And then finally, he uses the word fortress. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress. So this was the strong, secure tower that is impenetrable to any attack. I mean, imagine this, this massive castle with these thick walls and and a moat around it, and it would be very difficult for an enemy to get in. So there's four names for God, four pictures for God's protection, but then notice the three actions we must perform. He says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. In other words, you constantly remain in the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord is a permanent place of residence. You dwell there. Notice he uses a similar word, and will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. When you abide somewhere, that's a lodging place. That's a place where you stay for a while. That's not a hotel where you check in and check out of temporarily. This is your house. This is your home. You abide there. It's your dwelling place. And then he says, my God in whom I trust. To trust something or someone means to put your faith in them, to put your confidence in them. And so notice the psalmist here wasn't talking about merely believing in God or coming to him occasionally when you're in a difficult situation or you're threatened by some danger. Sadly, some of us only pray when we need something or we feel scared or in danger. We treat God like a spare tire. I don't know about you, I don't go down the road thinking about my spare tire. I forget it's even there until I get a flat tire and then the first thing I think about is my spare tire and I said, man, I sure hope that thing's aired up. I sure hope I'm able to put that thing on and can keep going down the road. Unfortunately, some of us treat God like that. We just go down the road of life and everything's just smooth sailing and we're not even thinking about it. Then all of a sudden, we have a breakdown and we're like, well, immediately we're thinking about that spare tire and expecting it to come through for us, expecting God to be there for us. See, the idea here is one who continually spends time with God and habitually trusts in him at all times and in all situations, both big and small. This is someone who practices the presence of God, that they live with a divine awareness, that God is with them everywhere, all the time. The question is, does this describe the relationship you have with God? 
Can you honestly say that you have a personal relationship with God in which you regularly spend time together and that you daily depend on him for everything? You spend time in his word, listening to him speak to you. You spend time in prayer speaking to him. One commentator said it this way, this is what true faith is, a committing of oneself to God with full reliance on his ability to provide and protect. And what the psalmist is saying is only those who are truly committed to God through a genuine profession of faith in him that is evidenced by an intimate abiding relationship with him can be assured of his protection. And so he says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And so that's the personal profession of faith in God's protection. And then he goes on to give a portrayal of God's protection in verses three through 13. And here the psalmist proceeded to give a picturesque description of the comprehensive protection that God provides those who dwell and abide and trust in him. Notice what he goes on to say. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper. And so if you're a hunter, you understand this analogy here, a trapper stalks his prey, sets up traps to catch his prey. And so this is a metaphor for anyone who maybe is stalking us like prey or plotting against us or intending to do, to do damage to our lives, to endanger our lives. God delivers you from that type of person. And notice he says, for as he delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. What's pestilence? Disease. Plagues. Pandemics. Doesn't get any more practical than that. Notice verse four. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. So here, God is pictured as a mother bird who's protecting her little ones with her wings, gathering up her chicks, and, and here comes the, the hawk overhead, ready to swoop down and take one of the chicks away and devour them, and so she gets them all to come under her wings, and she sits down on them and protects them. He also likens God's protection to a soldier's shield or a bulwark, which is a a thick, high wall. And then notice verse five and six. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. I think it's interesting. He says you will not be afraid of the terror by night. Typically, you could pretty much go anywhere um, during the daytime, and it's not really scary. Why? Because you can see what's going on around you. You can, you know, know what your surroundings are. And but at night, it's a different story, isn't it? You, you can go in the same space that you normally go in the daytime, and you don't even think about it. And you go in that same space at night, and it kind of freaks you out because you can't see who or what is around you, and that is when we're most vulnerable to attack. And so what the psalmist is saying, listen, our God protects us whenever and wherever, at all times and in all situations, he provides around-the-clock protection and security. Verse seven, a thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but, I, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. 
The picture here is of a, of a lone soldier standing on a battlefield strewn with carnage and you're the last man standing. How in the world? Everyone else died but you. Or a tornado ravaged neighborhood and your house is the only one left standing. Everything else is completely wiped out but there's your house, untouched. You will be miraculously delivered. You'll come through unscathed, unharmed is what he's saying. You'll merely be a spectator in times of trouble. Verse nine, why? For you have made the Lord my refuge. Even the most high, your dwelling place. So notice the psalmist is repeating or restating his original theme from verses one and two. And he's saying the reason why this is all true is because you're doing what I was doing. You trust God like I trust God. And so he reminded us of the, the reason why God will protect us. And we must never forget the, the one condition that we must meet if we want to experience God's protection is we need to trust in God rather than ourselves. And we need to regularly run to his presence for refuge and rely on his power, his strength, his wisdom to protect us and not our own. Verse 10, no evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. Again, very timely words there, plague. And again, what he's saying here is those who maintain an intimate relationship with the Lord and spend time with him regularly and live a life of daily dependence on him are in some way inoculated, not literally inoculated, but inoculated against evil and they're immune to sickness. That's what he's saying here. Hold that thought because some of you are going, that sounds weird. That's a little wacky theology there. Hang on. Let me finish. You remember the Passover? What was the whole, why, how did he get that name Passover? Because the death angel passed over the houses of the Israelites who had put the blood over the door. And so, again, the death angel distinguished between the homes of the Egyptians and the homes of the Israelites. And notice verse 11, for he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. One of the tasks that God has entrusted to angels is to guard and protect his people. You say, well, how does, guard, how does God guard us and protect us? Well, one of the ways is he employs his angels to do so. Well, you've all heard the expression, your guarding angel. I don't know if you have a guardian angel specifically assigned to you, but angels, apparently, according to what the psalmist is saying here, have a responsibility to guard and protect God's people. Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. I'll never forget reading the story of John Patton, the Scottish missionary to the cannibals who inhabited the New Hebrides uh, islands in the South Pacific, just west of Fiji, where the Seahusans are serving today. And uh, just a tragic story, initially they landed on the beach and for fear of what the cannibals might do, uh, they, they set up a camp on the beach and, and sadly their newborn uh, child died and, uh, and then his wife died and he had to bury them both on the beach and sleep on their graves so that the cannibals wouldn't come in the middle of the night and dig them up. And so years later, after uh, many of those uh, cannibals had gotten saved, they were sitting around one evening and one of the cannibal or former cannibal chiefs said, I have a question for you, Mr. Patton. When you first arrived on our beach, who were all those soldiers with flaming swords surrounding your tent? 
Wow, that's cool. John Patton never saw those, never knew they were there. But those unbelieving cannibals saw them and God made sure they saw them. Interesting, verse 12, they will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. That verse is quoted in the New Testament by who? Satan. This is the only verse of scripture that we have record of in the scriptures that the devil quoted. And it was when he was tempting Jesus in Matthew 4, Luke 4. And if you remember, he said what? Hey, why don't you go up on top of the temple and jump off and prove that you are the son of God because he says in his word that his angels will protect you and not let your foot, you know, you won't stub your toe. Won't even let you stub your toe. Well, Satan misquoted the verse, in fact, and was tempting Jesus to misapply it by being reckless and presumptuous. It's interesting that, Jesus, that, that Satan didn't also quote verse 13, like context is king here. Satan, why didn't you go on and quote verse 13 that says, you will tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Well, it's obvious why he didn't quote that verse along with verse 13, because that seems to be a veiled reference to how Jesus would ultimately trample him and defeat him. 1 Peter 5.8 says that Satan is like a roaring, what? Lion, seeking someone to devour. Revelation 12.9 and uh, Revelation 20 verses two and three describe Satan as the dragon, the serpent of old. And so it's clear why he didn't quote that verse because that's evidence that he's going down, that his days are numbered, as is this coronavirus. His days are numbered. Now, I hope you're thinking to yourself, and if you are thinking this, that means you're being a good Berean you're trying to piece together all that the Bible says and making sure that what I'm saying matches up with what the rest of God's word says. And so you might be thinking to yourself, well, now wait a minute. Okay, evil does befall believers. Christians get cancer. Christians' homes are destroyed by tornadoes. Christians get in car wrecks. There are Christians who have already gotten coronavirus and may have even died because of the coronavirus. You're like, what's up with that? Is that a contradiction to God's word? Did God not keep his promises to those believers? I think it's important to say at this point that just because we trust in God doesn't mean we're totally immune from bad things happening to us. But ultimately, nothing can harm a child of God unless the Lord permits it. And it's always for God's glory and it's always for our good. Genesis 50, 20, what Satan meant for evil, what you meant for evil, what God means for good. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Romans 8, 28 and 29. So sometimes it is God's will for us to experience pain and heartache and sickness and disease. Why? So we grow and mature from it. James chapter one, verse two, consider it all joy, my brethren, Christians, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Let perseverance or endurance have its perfect work so that you might be what? Mature and complete, lacking nothing. Romans 5, verses three and four. We also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. In other words, God sustains 
us through suffering, as we learn perseverance, as we develop character, as our faith is being strengthened, as, our, as, our, as we increase in our hope. I shared this quote uh, with you when we went through Romans 8, 28 and 29, but it's worth repeating. This is C.H. Spurgeon. He said, quote, it is impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. Ill to him is no ill, but only good in a mysterious form. Losses enrich him, sickness is his medicine. Reproach is his honor, and death is his gain. That's why the psalmist so boldly portrayed the immunity of those who trust in God to evil, loss, disease, and even death. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Because it's all good for those who trust in the Lord. And so there was the portrayal of God's protection and then finally, let's look at the the promise of God's protection. This is my favorite part of this psalm. I think it will be yours as well. Because what happens here in these last three verses is that God himself showed up, if you will, in this psalm, grabbed the mic, or grab the pen, however you want to visualize this, from the psalmist, and says, it's my turn. And what he does is he provides divine reassurance that he will stand behind the psalmist's claims. That he's gonna back up what the psalmist has said. Notice verse 14. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him, I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with a long life. I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. So God promises here to save and satiate all those who belong to him. The question is, how do you know if you belong to him? Well, there's three conditions. He says, because he has loved me. In other words, if you love God, you cling to God, you cleave to God, you're committed to obeying God. And so that's the first condition, is love for God. The second condition is knowing God. I will set him securely and high because he has known my name. In other words, you know him. You have a relationship with him and you long to know him better and to get closer and more intimate with him. You, you want to understand him more. And the third condition is that you call upon him, verse 15. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. Well, in order for that to happen, you got to call out to him. And how do you call out to God? You do that through prayer. When you express your dependence on him. And so if you meet these three conditions, love, know, and call, there are six promises that God has made to you. Notice the six I wills. I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high. I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. I will satisfy him and I will let him see my salvation. That's some insurance policy right there, by the way. That's not that you are just saved from sin. That means you're saved forever. This is, this is talking ultimately about our eternal security. That we will be safe and sound forever in heaven. But this insurance policy 
doesn't come without a price. There are terms that we, as the insured, must agree to. There's a, a deductible, if you will, that we must be willing to pay. And we understand we all have insurances for different things. And a deductible is the, the amount of money that that insured person has to pay before the insurance agency will follow through with their claim. So if you have a $500 deductible, right, you pay that first and then they pay, pay the rest. Spiritually speaking, the deductible in this case is simply faith. It's faith. We need to trust God in order for him to protect us. And so when it's all said and done, this psalm should calm and soothe our souls. As God promises here to provide protection for all those who trust in him in times of trouble. Steve Lawson, who has written a great commentary on the Psalms, and on this Psalm in particular, he said this, quote, we may always have confidence that God's protection is greater than any danger that threatens us. No matter how great the adversity we may face, God is bigger than the adversity and remains in full control. He is always over all, thus we must trust him completely. And so those of you who trust God completely because you know him and love him, God's response to COVID-19 is, hey, you got nothing to fear. You got nothing to fear. But he has a different response to those of you that don't know him and don't love him. And his response to you, to COVID-19, is you have much to be afraid of. And it's not so much of because of COVID-19, it's because of a far worse disease that has infected you. You're already infected. And it's far worse than coronavirus, it's called sin. And the Bible says we contracted sin or contracted sin, I should say, from our ancestors, Adam and Eve, who disobeyed God in the garden by eating the forbidden fruit. And so they passed that sin onto us, both their sin and the death that resulted from it spread to all mankind. We all got it. And guess what? The Bible says we're all gonna die because of it. The Bible says sin will kill us if we don't repent of it and receive the antidote that God provided, which is his son, Jesus, who died on the cross and endured God's wrath against sin. And when Jesus came to earth, he expressed his desire to gather people together, just like the psalmist pictures here, that that mother hen gathering her chicks under her wings to shield them, protect them from the coming wrath of God. But most were unwilling to repent of their sin and place their trust in him, and instead they nailed him to a cross. And yet, ironically, that was God's way of providing a remedy a vaccine to rescue us from his wrath. And when Jesus hung on the cross, the most high God poured out the full fury of his wrath on his son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I remember years ago reading a story of a forest fire in California and after the fire had been put out, the firemen were kind of walking through the area and putting out the hot spots and just making sure everything was completely extinguished and the, the whole area was scorched. There was nothing left standing. And one of the firemen came on this petrified bird that was just laying there. And so the firemen just kicked it over and out from underneath that bird 
scurry these little chicks who had been protected from the flames by hiding under their mother's wings. And in a similar way, Jesus sheltered us from God's fiery wrath. He sacrificed his own life so that we might live and his blood is the only vaccine that can save us from sin and death. And you don't have to wait a year to get it. You can get it right now. You can get it this morning. And all it requires is for you to call out to God and confess your sin and place your faith in his son Jesus as the only way that you can be made right with him. Is Jesus Christ your Lord, your Savior? Are you trusting in him alone as your refuge from God's wrath? If you are, then the promises in this psalm apply to you. And you can live by faith and not in fear. I feel I'd be remiss if I didn't leave you with a few practical tips to keep yourself healthy. Not physically healthy, spiritually healthy during this COVID-19 crisis. If you, if you click on Google, they got that little hand, right? With the five things you're supposed to do right now to keep yourself from getting sick. I've modified them a bit. Okay, you ready? This is for your spiritual health. Number one, wash your hands. But don't forget to fold them in prayer. We need to pray. This is a time for God's people to pray. Number two, don't touch your face. Right? They're saying, hey, don't touch your mouth and your eyes and your, your, your nose. Don't touch your face. But seek God's face in his word. If there was ever a time we needed to be in this thing right here, right, to not be conformed to the world around us and all that we're hearing and saying, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, we gotta be in God's word. So seek God's face in his word. Number three, keep a safe distance from others but stay connected with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Stay connected. Don't go into isolation. Even if you have to physically, quarantined, whatever, yourself, stay connected somehow. Be creative. There's plenty of ways we can stay connected without being here in this building. So stay connected to the body of Christ. Number four, cough or sneeze into the inside of your elbow. We all have been given demonstrations. There are YouTube videos about how you're supposed to cough and sneeze, right? Cough or sneeze inside, the inside of your elbow so you don't spread germs, but make sure you spread the gospel. Make sure you spread the gospel. Listen, this is an unprecedented opportunity. I've never seen anything like it in my lifetime. I mean, it, when something like this captures the psyche of a, of a culture, Everybody's thinking about it. It's the very first thing that comes out of their mouth. You're thinking about it. They're thinking about it. They're talking about it. You're talking about it. Well, then talk about it. I mean, coronavirus is the ultimate conversation starter. And it doesn't take very long for you to get to the place where you can say, uh, hey, by the way, um, if you were to catch coronavirus and, and die, do you know where you'd go? And it's not like an offensive transition there because guess what? Why do you think people are scared? Because they don't want to get it and they don't want to die. So give them hope. Hey, guess what? You don't have to be afraid. I'm not afraid. I had crazy ladies at my church this last week making me hug them because they want to go to heaven. And, uh, you know, like I told my, one of my neighbors yesterday, just walking the dog and she said, hey, how you doing with all this corona? I said, hey, if this doesn't kill us, something else will. I mean, that, you can go right to the gospel with those kind of comments, right? I mean, it's just right there on the surface. Take advantage of it. Don't miss the opportunity. 
And then number five, number five, and I think this is particularly maybe for us here at this church, maybe more than anybody else, don't judge how unbelievers are reacting to this global emergency. It's really easy for us to do that. Can you believe that? This is ridiculous. People are losing their minds. We, we can do that. Don't judge how unbelievers are reacting to this global emergency. They're acting like unbelievers. That's what unbelievers do. That's how unbelievers think. That's how they react. Have compassion on them and seek to love them and serve them in any way that you can. Matthew chapter nine, be like Jesus. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. The reason why the world is responding the way they're responding is they don't have a shepherd. We do. Let's introduce them to our shepherd. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for our time that uh, we have together this morning just to be reminded of the truths of your word and all the promises that you've made to us that are guaranteed. You're a faithful God. You're a powerful God. You're a sovereign God. You're a wise God. You're a good God, a merciful God, a gracious God. And you're also a just God. And Lord, we can't even begin to understand your purposes for this virus. But you have your purposes. You ordained that this all would happen for a reason, to bring you glory and to accomplish good things in people's lives. And we, we know one of those good things is to make us trust you more, to cause us to lean into you more but Lord, I have to also believe it's so that people will get saved and that there will be a, a, a revival that would be pandemic, a worldwide revival where you take people who are living in fear of death and you expose them through your people, through your church, through Christians um, of the hope of eternal life in heaven through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So help us to be faithful witnesses, faithful ambassadors for Christ, that you would give us opportunities this week just in our everyday conversations with our family members and our friends and neighbors and coworkers and classmates and teammates and the cashiers and the people that serve us, Lord, that we would just be talking about Jesus and introducing people to our shepherd so that they could have the peace, they could have the hope, they could have the joy, the confidence, the rest that we enjoy, ultimately because of our relationship with you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.